Jeremiah 52, and please just uh, read along as I as I cover this chapter. I'm going to read uh, the first 30 verses of it. Just read it down. It's the last chapter of the book of Jeremiah. It begins in verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Not Jeremiah the prophet, different Jeremiah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, like all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord this came about in Jerusalem and Judah, until he cast them out from his presence, and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. That's two years. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then the city was broken into. And all the men of war fled and went forth from the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which is by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went by the way of the Arabah, But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. That's ironic, isn't it? That they were overtaken in the plains of Jericho, the very first country to fall as the people came into the promised land. This is the same region now where all the army were captured as the land was falling to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, verse 9, Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamat, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he also slaughtered all the princes of Judah in Riblah. Then he blinded the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon and put him in prison until the day of his death. Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who was in the service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every large house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile some of the poorest people, the rest of the people who were left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted the king to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest people of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Now the bronze pillars which belonged to the house of the Lord, and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins, the pans and all the bronze vessels which were used in temple service. The captain of the guard also took away the bowls, the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the lampstands, the pans and the drink offering bowls, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. The two pillars, the one sea and the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea and the stands which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of each pillar was 18 cubits, that would be 27 feet, and it was 12 cubits in circumference, so 18 feet around. Now a capital of bronze was on it, 
Um, oh, it was four fingers in thickness and hollow. And a capital of bronze was on it, and the height of each capital was five cubits with a network and pomegranates upon the capital all around, all of bronze. And the second pillar was like these, including pomegranates. There were 96 exposed pomegranates. All the pomegranates numbered 100 on the network all around. Verses 17 through 23, the whole purpose is, is to say the very riches and wealth of Judah was taken away. Everything of any value, all the gold, the silver, and the bronze of the temple itself, which was the most highly valued wealth and riches in the land, was taken off into captivity. Jerusalem was gutted. Then the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest. With three officers of the temple, he also took from the city one official who was overseer of the men of war, seven of the king's advisors who were found in the city, and the scribe of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, Then the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamat. So Judah was led away into exile from its land. And these are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away into exile. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, 832 persons from Jerusalem. In the twenty-third year... Of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and the captain of the guard carried into, into exile 745 Jewish people. There were 4,600 persons in all. Fathers, we consider this last, this last chapter of Jeremiah, this supplementary section. I pray that you would bring to mind, Father, the glory of your word, the veracity of it, the truth of it. May we see with clear eyes and hear with ears what you're saying here, what you want us to know from this passage. And I pray you will bless this time. Might we, Lord, simply be in the presence of your Spirit and test each of our hearts and draw us near to you. And may we, Lord, have that sense truly of sitting at your feet and being taught of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jeremiah 51 ends by saying, Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Or, another translation, the words of Jeremiah end here. And that's very specific. At the end of chapter 51, it is a way of saying that chapter 52 are not the words of Jeremiah. It's a supplementary section. Jeremiah probably did not write it himself. This is an historical addendum to the book of prophecy. I'm not saying that God didn't intend it to be here. I'm not even saying that it's not spirit-inspired. I'm just saying that the pen that put these words to papyrus or to paper was probably not the pen of Jeremiah. What this does, this historical addendum, again relates to us what we've already read, and that is the fall of Jerusalem. It's an event so crucial in the Scriptures that it's listed, it's accounted for four different times in Jeremiah 52 as we've read, in Jeremiah 39 verses 1 through 14, in 2 Chronicles 36 verses 11 through 21, and finally in 2 Kings 24 verses 18 through 25 verse 30. That last passage, 2 Kings 24 through 25, is almost a word for word historical account of what we read in Jeremiah 52. With a few little differences, those two sections obviously come from the same source material. Now, for you Bible students, you may look at this 
and say, okay, 4,600 persons in all. That seems like a small number. Especially compared to the number of exiles who would return 70 years later. Even if the Jewish people in captivity were prolific, which they tended to be. But 4,600 people, what's going on here? Uh, the dates also seem a little bit off when he talks about these three times of, of exile. Here's the thing. It's probably a list that is additional to the primary three waves of deportation. In other words, these are not, it's not just 4,600 people that were carried off into captivity, but it's 4,600 additional people here in the book of Jeremiah that are listed specifically so that we could understand the full ramification of what happened. As opposed to generalities now, it gets down to the nitty-gritty that at the fall of Jerusalem, it's this many more people who were carried into captivity. Many more were slaughtered in this, in this attack on Jerusalem. And so what we see here, and why I believe we're given these numbers and, and these different dates, is to help us understand the fullness of the exile all the way down to the last 4,600 people. Okay? So you've got to get the whole big picture here. And you might ask the question, well, why the add-on here in Jeremiah? And I believe it's because the prophecy of Jeremiah ends with a detailed accounting of literal fulfillment. You have 51 chapters of prophecy, and then you have a final chapter of history showing that the prophecy was fulfilled, exactly as Jeremiah said it would be. Word for word, we see the fulfillment. In other words, there's a word for this, vindication. Jeremiah 52 is the vindication of the entire book of Jeremiah. It is the vindication of the life message of this prophet. This prophet who never saw a convert, who never saw his people return and repent and do what he prayed and hoped that they would do his entire life. He preached the message day in and day out. And it never got through. And yet here in chapter 52, vindication. That no man can say Jeremiah was wrong with his message. That no one can say he spoke out of turn. He he didn't speak the words of the Lord. Jeremiah is a man who did not waste a single word. Unlike all the false prophets of his day, Jeremiah spent his breath on the true word of God. And I believe chapter 52 verifies that. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke the unpopular truth. It's not easy to do. Especially when people want their ears tickled. Jeremiah preached a stern warning. That's tough to do. Especially while others preach a bogus peace. Jeremiah spoke in spiritual realities, but his people were caught up in the flesh. And the more we live in the flesh, the less we want to hear spiritual things. And it's kind of a test to know where your heart is with the Lord. If it's bugging you to hear just straight Bible teaching, if it's bugging you to hear the Spirit elevated and things of the Spirit talked about and encouraged, if that's an issue for you, well then you need to check your heart. Jeremiah stayed on message. He was vindicated by history and by his God. Christ followers, are you on message? Are we staying on message? Are we continuing with the gospel? Are we speaking the words of God? 
even if it's being disdained by culture, even if in other Christian settings it's softening, are you on message? I ask myself that constantly. And again, it's not to say that that my preaching is flawless word for word the words of God. You know some of my puns cannot be from God. (laughs) But I do ask and I do pray, Lord, am I on message here? I finish a study. And Thursday afternoon typically ends with me saying, Lord, am I on message? I go back over study notes to say, am I on message? Is there something else that's just pet issues that is not what you want me to say? Am I on message? You see, the calling of the Christian, especially here at the end of the age, is to proclaim one primary message, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the message of our lives. Jeremiah's message was a difficult one. It was a message of judgment. That is not our message. We bring a message of grace. The message of the cross. Does that message permeate your prayers? Does it permeate your conversations? Does it fill your desires? Because among all the mixed messages of the world, listen, the gospel alone will be vindicated. There is a day coming when all of mankind will look back and recognize, yes, the gospel message was true. Yes, the young man who broke the tape for his relay team in Texas this last week and pointed to God and got disqualified for it. Yes, the Gospel is true. That is our message. The message that will be vindicated, just as Jeremiah's message was vindicated. Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Vindication. Justification. Salvation. That said, one of the true ironies, I think for me, in our times, is the fact that the Gospel, which is not like Jeremiah's message of judgment, the Gospel, which is the good news of grace to man, is being shut out of our culture. The good news, people don't want to hear the good news. People don't want to hear of grace. And remarkably, here at the end of the message of Jeremiah, it's the message of grace that we are left with. Look at verse 31. We're going to spend the rest of our time in these last four verses. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month, that evil Merodach who is brother to evil Knievel, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Jehoiachin. Now before I get to Jehoiachin, who was an evil dude himself, let's talk about evil Merodach. He was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He reigned from 562 to 560. And what we see coming from evil Merodach is not evil, we see grace. And understand that the name evil Merodach, evil Merodach, means man of Marduk. That's all it means. In fact, it's a Hebrew transliteration of the Assyrio-Babylonian name Amel Marduk. So we'll just call him Amel. Amel, not evil, But Amel, Marduk, it means son of the solar calf. Marduk being the solar calf god, the son of the sun, 
of the Babylonian pagan belief system, Amel Marduk. And this King Amel, in his short two-year reign, did something the Lord apparently considered worthy of mention twice in the Scriptures, both here and back in 2 Kings 25. What did this Amel do? He set Jehoiachin free. Jehoiachin. Now think about Jehoiachin. You may recall his other name, Jeconiah. If anyone was evil, it was Jeconiah. This is the man God called Coniah because he didn't want the Jah, the Yah from Jeconiah, which is the Yah of Yahweh. He didn't want his name even associated with this king. So when God refers to Jeconiah, he calls him Coniah. This is the king of the final four, the one who was so evil, he's the only one who ended up cursed. His entire lineage. Jeremiah 22.30, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Even if Judah were miraculously saved from Babylon, even if Judah were miraculously restored to the land, supernaturally protected, no son of Jehoiachin of the line of the kings of Judah could sit on the throne. God put a curse on him. He became a blight on that Judaic line, which, my friends, is the line from David to Solomon and on down. He's the stopgap. You get to Jehoiachin and you cannot set a man of Judah on that throne any longer. We've talked about this. That if you follow that line all the way down, you end up with Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus. Although he was supposed because it wasn't Joseph's seed that brought Jesus into the world. It was the Holy Spirit. And if you follow the line from David, and not through Solomon, but through his son Natan, and all the way down, it lands at Mary, Jesus' biological mother. Interesting. But back to Coniah. This guy was a bad dude. Second Chronicles 36, verse 9. Just listen to this. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's one nasty eight-year-old. <laughs> By the way, side note, are children innocent beings? No, they're not. No, they are not. Not even close. We are natural-born sinners, every one of us. We come with that proclivity. And I'm not talking about the original sin of Adam. We don't need his sin. We are original sinners all on our own. We do just fine by ourselves. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Well, how do we make God a liar? Because God says, you are sinful. You are a sinner. You have in you a sin nature. And that's why our culture does not want to hear the Gospel of Grace. Because the Gospel message begins with that truth. It's a glorious message. It's a message of salvation. But to receive salvation, you have to recognize first that you're lost. 
First, that you're a sinner. First, that you are in need of a Savior. And people don't want to hear that. They don't want to recognize the ugly underbelly of their lives. The Gospel message, as we've talked about, completely blows away the good person theory. I'm a good person. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. The Gospel says no. Jesus said in Mark 10.18, No one is good except God alone. Now, think about Jehoiachin. Was he really worthy of a curse at the age of eight? Probably not. Because if you go to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8, it says Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Nahushta, which means brassy. <laughs> Nahushta, the daughter of Elnatan of Jerusalem. Well, there you go. That sets up a problem. There's a contradiction in scriptures. Chronicles says he was 8. Kings says he was 18. Someone's wrong there. God's word is fallible. No, it's not. We ought to understand the culture and how these things worked. Second Chronicles 36 does say he was 8 when he became king. Second Kings 24, he was 18 when he became king. In terms of culture, he was 8 years old when he was named prince, co-regent with his father. Ruling alongside his father, under his father's tutelage, raised up to be a king, but eight years old when he would be considered royalty, the prince. But 18 in his ascension to the throne. 18 when he ruled by himself. And we see this through all the kings of Judah and Israel. This parallel uh, ruling together, oftentimes father and son ruling on the throne, son under the father until the father was either killed or moved on, and then the son took it themselves and brought their son along. So that's what we believe is going on here with Jehoiachin. Is Yeah, he was eight years old when he became Prince Jehoiachin. Had the authority of the king under his father, but then... 18 years old, when he took the throne by himself, reigned for three months, and was so absolutely evil, he was canned, captured, and cursed by God. Any way you cut it, an 18-year-old worthy of a curse is an evil, evil person. I know a lot of 18-year-olds, and no offense to those of you who are in the 18-ish age range, but you still have a lot of life to figure out how bad you can be. I, I was at 18 thought, though a Christian, though I knew I needed grace, I still didn't quite understand grace the way I do today. I didn't get how lost I really was without Christ. Not like I do now. And I guarantee you, the older you get, and you talk to some of the senior saints among our fellowship, they will tell you, (laughs) I got a lifetime of knowing how badly I need the grace of Jesus. So Jehoiachin, at the age of 18, three months ruling and reigning, ends up cursed. He's taken off into Babylon in uh, the the first or second uh, wave of captivity. You can look that up. But he would spend the next 37 years in prison before suddenly, at the age of 55, he's released. You know what that tells us? Life really doesn't begin until your 50s. The book of Jeremiah, gang, and this is so wonderful, it ends with grace to a cursed ex-con. That's where the book ends. We spend the whole time dealing with the judgments and the warnings and the weepings of Jeremiah, but the book ends with grace. Praise the Lord. 
I mean, isn't that good news? A cursed and captive man shown amazing grace. Look around. We are the church of Coniah. We are a bunch of Coniahs. We are people, gang, who were cursed. The Bible tells us in Galatians 3.13-14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Well, we should have, but He instead did. That is, hang on the tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In Galatians 3.26, Paul goes on, For you are all sons of God and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Not second-hand sons like we say. First-hand. My adopted children are no less my children than my biological children. And I feel exactly the same about them. All my kids are my kids. And so maybe you're not Jewish, having been raised up as the chosen people of God, but you have been adopted in, and once adopted in, you are every bit as important to God, matter every bit as much to God, as the Jewish people do. Drawn into this wonderful thing. For you are all baptized, he says, in Christ, and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Is there any message better than that? Is there anything else in our lives that's more wonderful to share than that good news, that gospel, the message of grace? And that is our message. And that is what we are called to share, and yet we're so silent sometimes. And and I think it's because we don't realize how good it is. How blessed we are to be under the grace of God which is undeserved. We are a cursed people and we are ex-convicts. Every one of us. Just like Coniah. And what happens to him? Well, we're told again in verse 31 that evil Merodach, Amel, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. I wonder how 37 years of prison affected him. Having grown up under his dad's tutelage in royalty and privilege, three months reigning, captured and dragged off, and 37 years of his life in confinement. That's got to have an effect. And I wonder how 37 years of captivity had an effect on Jehoiachin in his release. The day that the king came to him and said, I'm setting you free. Again, the first thing the gospel message does for us, and I'll give you some things that it does here. Number one is conviction. The first thing the gospel does is convict. The message of grace is nothing but cheap talk until we see what we are without it. It's not just, oh yeah, whatever, universal, anybody, anywhere, anyhow. Easily saved, just, you know, live your life. God's got you covered. Cheap grace. you got to be convicted. Until you come to the place of conviction in your lives, you don't get the Gospel. But when we're convicted, we get the Gospel in full. Conviction. See, in conviction, Jesus showed me my stained heart. In conviction, I saw how messed up I was. I ran across an interesting label on a soap dispenser in our guest bathroom. 
yesterday. Went in there to wash my hands and I looked down and I'm reading the label. You know how you just read stuff? when you, I don't know if you do that. I can't stop thinking, so I'm always looking for something to do. I'm washing my hands. I'm reading and it says, J.R. Watkins Naturals Hand Soap. Conscience clearing power. <laughs> so you know what I did? I went out and I sinned really bad. <laughs> and then I came back and washed my hands and voila! I, I, it, was, I was, it was great. Conscience cleared. Come on. <laughs> Crying out loud. How stupid. And, and how superficial. Conscience clearing power. And yet, and yet, we'll go to a counselor for absolution. We'll do good deeds hoping that that will get us clean enough. And we'll wash and we'll wash and we'll wash. But my friends, without conviction, there is no cleansing. Come to Jesus to be cleansed. Come to Jesus convicted that you need a Savior. And Romans 8.1 tells us there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Turn over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We've looked at this story before, but it's such a, an amazing picture of exactly what we're talking about here. Jesus is invited to a luncheon at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And he comes into Simon's house and sits down, and they begin to eat, having missed some important things that are supposed to happen when you invite a guest into your home. And as Jesus is there eating, we're told a woman who knows that he's there, a sinful woman comes rushing into the house. She is weeping. And it says that her tears were getting on his feet and she began to wash his feet with her tears. And I was thinking it's interesting if you read in the text, in fact, it's verse 38 of Luke chapter 7, standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. You know what that means? Her tears weren't just falling on on his feet. She wasn't bowed before him. She was behind him. The only way her tears could get on his feet from behind him is for her to take them and wash his feet with them. She is actively using what she has to wash what she recognizes to be the dirty feet of Jesus. She uses what she has to dry his feet, her hair. This is a woman who is convicted. A woman who is imprisoned in her sin and sees that Jesus is the only hope that she has and we're told that she began. She kept wiping them with her, the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And of course, we've asked the question before, how did he know? But he's sitting there judging this woman who is just pouring out, unashamedly, pouring out her life before Jesus And in verse 40, Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. (laughs) A moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And they were unable to repay. He graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, Well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said, You've judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Three socially acceptable things to wash the feet. 
to dry the feet there, to, to, to kiss the guest, to anoint the guest with oil. These things would show honor to a guest coming in the house. Simon the Pharisee had done none of this for Jesus. Eh, your seat's over there. Come on in, sit down and talk about some things. And Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. What preceded the forgiveness? Conviction. Simon the Pharisee was not convicted, therefore not saved. Simon the Pharisee was not convicted, therefore did not understand, did not see grace. But the woman saw grace in Jesus such that in her own conviction came before Him, fell before Him, knowing He was her only hope, and truly He was. This is what Jesus does, by the way, with the convicted. We get a snapshot here of Amel Marduk's treatment of the convicted Jehoiachin. It's amazing to me. He showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. He released him. And Jesus releases this woman from the prison of her sin, from her captivity, from her conviction. You are no longer a convict. Now you are saved. Isaiah 66, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord, has, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you Bible students know that was the text of Jesus' first sermon there in the small synagogue in Nazareth. By the way, when is the favorable year of the Lord? Right now! Right now. So don't give up. Don't pull back. Make the most of the message. Keep telling people of the message of grace. Don't cease and desist with the gospel. Make the most of your time, Ephesians 5.16 tells us, because the days are evil. And you might say, yeah, but Rick, people are getting resistant. Of course they are. Of course they are, because with every speaking of God's grace to them, you are bringing them, the Spirit is bringing them into conviction. And conviction is uncomfortable. And conviction is hard. And I don't like to be in that place. I don't want to recognize that I've been in prison all these years. And by the way, for some people, you keep proclaiming the message because it could take them 37 years to recognize they're in prison. And I wonder if part of the reason why God let Jehoiachin sit there for 37 years was to come to the end of himself so that he would recognize where his freedom came from. You may feel imprisoned this morning. You may feel stuck. You may feel addicted. You may feel like you are locked into a lifestyle of sin today. King Jesus stands ready to release you. This is Jesus' desire. Release. Watch this. Continuing on in verse 32. Then He spoke kindly to him. So second thing that happens here. We see conviction. Second thing is compassion. Jesus speaks kindly to us. Jesus spoke kindly to me. Romans 2.4 says, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is one of the Gospel's biggest surprises. And something the world doesn't quite yet understand. And that is that it's not judgment that follows conviction, it's kindness. Imagine a scene of a courtroom. And the judge says, convicted. The jury proclaims, guilty. And here is your sentence. And suddenly the judge speaks kindly. 
someone has already taken your punishment. A man has already gone to the tree that was reserved for you. You may go. Kindness follows conviction. Compassion. I realize my sin, but I don't want to appeal to God because I'm afraid He's just going to execute me. So I avoid the whole thing. But God doesn't. He speaks kindly. And this is good news. This is gospel. To the sinner, to the convicted, the condemned, Jesus speaks kindness. And look at His pattern of behavior. He touches the leper. Mark chapter 2. He calls the unclean outcast woman daughter. Luke 8. And to the woman disgracefully caught in adultery, obvious, clear sin, I'd say unadulterated sin, but it was actually adulterated sin, Jesus in John 8.11 says, I do not condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. He speaks kindness. The only harsh words, get this, the only harsh words Jesus ever spoke were to those who no longer thought they needed a Savior. Religious people. I hope we never fall into that camp. I pray that none of us ever get to the place in our lives where we feel like we have been Christians long enough, we have walked with Jesus long enough, that we no longer really need a Savior. After all, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. What do I need a Savior for? Jesus has harsh words for religious people. But He spoke kindly to him. Amel did to Jehoiachin. And, watch this, set His throne above the thrones of the kings who were with Him in Babylon. What? He brings Him out of prison and puts Him on the throne. Raises Him up. Do you see the parallel here? We go from conviction to compassion. Now, number three, confidence. Jesus secures your place. He secured my place. Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in our trans- trespasses and sins. Verse 4 then goes on and says, But God, being rich and mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I love verse 6, And He raised us up Amen. with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you thought these chairs were comfortable. You are already, as far as God is concerned, if you are saved in Jesus, you are already seated with Him. You already have a throne. You have a place that is secured for you, promised to you. Jesus has done this so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said of those days to come, Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Come on, kids. Hop on the chair. Come sit with Dad. Amazing. Confidence. As we go out and share the gospel message, we don't have anything to worry about because that's already taken care of. We already have a seat with Jesus. We already have a throne upon which we can sit. And you know what that means for today? It also means we already have authority. You see, we're co-regents. Maybe a better word for it is ambassador. We're ambassadors now. Jesus frees the convict. He speaks kindly to him. And then He raises His position to both royalty and authority. An authority that we did not earn. An authority we have then coming in the Millennial Kingdom 
As we've talked about many times, but also in authority right now. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of God, or on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now think about that. Why would he do that? Why would Amel call up Yehoiachin, a 37-year convict, and set him on a throne? Why would God do that with us? Call up formerly cursed ex-cons to become royal ambassadors. That does not look good on a resume. In America, if you wanted an ambassadorial position, you'd have to have a squeaky clean record. My strongest appeal to the world is the effect of the Gospel on me. And don't miss this. The reason why God has called up sinners to be ambassadors is because we know how high we've been drawn. We know the greatness of His grace. And we can honestly share that. I was a mess. My life without Christ, I can't even imagine. But Jesus called me out and Jesus changed me. And the story that each one of us have, and you may not have some amazing, for years I wandered deep in sin story, but you have a past. And you were cursed and you were a convict, but now you are an ambassador for Christ. Tell the story. The Gospel is not just Jesus died, rose, and lives. Get saved. The Gospel is, do you know what that means to me? Do you know what that's done to me? Do you realize how how, how God has changed my entire life and wants to change yours as well? I don't come to you as one righteous person other than the righteousness of Christ which has washed me and cleansed me and made me whole. Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. The Greek word is protos. First. Paul says, I'm the first of the sinners. And I would say, no, Paul, that's me. We could have a big argument about who's really the foremost of all sinners. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 2, We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's all of us. But now we're ambassadors, and our appeal to the world as ambassadors is not to hide our past but to say I have been drawn from that past into the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. So ambassadors, it's good news. And it keeps getting better. Look at the next verse, verse 33. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes. Conviction, compassion, confidence, number four, clothing. Clothing. My mom passed along a Patagonia catalog. I don't know if you've heard of Patagonia. It's surfer clothes and surf wear. And I like it. I confess to you all. I have this thing for Quicksilver and Matix and, you know, and surf type flannels and take the boy out of the California, but you can't always get all the California out of the boy. And so I'm flipping through the Patagonia catalog and I'm going, man, that's a cool shirt. Ooh, I like that backpack. That's awesome. Could use that in Israel, Lord. You know, that'd be you know a good biblical <laughs> biblical expense. Only one hundred twenty nine dollars, you know, and and these shirts, you know, eighty nine bucks. I'm going. I walked out of the room and I go, Cheryl, 
How come I like expensive stuff? And I don't want to. I'd rather go to the thrift store, but I go to the thrift store and go, ooh, someone wore that? You know? <laughs> Confession time. Check it out. Clothing. All of our filthy rags, our prison rags, get changed. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, Isaiah 64, verse 6 tells us. And note this, when it says, it says, Yehoiachin changed his prison clothes, i got to point this out, that's not the original uh, translation. It's not in the original language. It doesn't say Yehoiachin changed his prison clothes. It says, he changed his prison clothes. He who? Amel Marduk. Well, that's a little weird. Don't think of it that way. Amel Marduk said, take his rags off and clothe him with this. Put on kingly robes. Put on good clothing. Go get a ring. Get sandals for his feet. Get the finest robe. Kill the fattened calf for my son who was dead is now alive. Who was lost is now found. It's the prodigal son. And that's us as we come to Jesus. He changes our clothes. The king changes the clothes of the convict. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And again, I I love this. I don't have to spend $89 on a nice shirt from Patagonia because I have been clothed with righteousness. The clothing of the King. When I, I think about how much emphasis most of us put on our outward appearance getting ourselves gusked up and ready to head out the door, it pales in comparison to the clothing Jesus Christ gives His bride. Revelation 19.8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine flannel, fine linen, (laughs) bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, but don't miss, as I said Wednesday night, it was given to her. Amen. Yes, the righteousness, the righteous acts of the saints, that's what we wear. But our righteous acts are God-led, Spirit-accomplished. And so it was given to us. The clothing, the confidence, the compassion coming out of our conviction. And continuing on it said, and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. I mean, it goes from better to even better still. Number five, cuisine. Jesus shares with me the king's table. As Jehoiachin now eats at the table of Amel Marduk among the other kings there in Babylon. So now every day of our life, we eat at the king's table. And David put it this way, Psalm 23.5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus doesn't bring us in and tell us to sit down and not wash our feet and not... Uh, give us a holy kiss, and not anoint our head with oil. No, He does all of that and presents us and prepares a table before us that we might feast and dine with the Lord all the days of our life. Even in the presence of our enemies. And you know, this is what we're doing right now. Not the enemy part. We come to the Lord's table and we gather together and we share His body and His blood. And we drink deeply at the well of worship. And we dive into the Word of God. What a feast! 
And it's a feast God prepares for you every day of your life. Not just Sunday mornings, or Wednesday night, or Sunday evening in a small group, or whatever you might... Every day of your life, you are invited to come sit at the King's table. It is prepared. It is waiting for you. From time to time, when I'm, especially Tuesdays and Thursdays, I get out of my office a little later than usual, and, and oftentimes, dinner's already on the table. And sometimes it's cold. Because I've been so intense and so focused on what I'm trying to do. And Cheryl has told me several times, and the last time she told me was, it's going to get cold. I know, I'll be there as soon as I... And, and it's there. And, and I think, you know, we do that to the Lord sometimes. We make Him wait. The table's prepared. It's just waiting for you. And we can feed there, and we can dine there, we can sup with the Lord anytime we want to. And God's cuisine is never empty calories. The diet of a follower of Jesus is the most satisfying, fulfilling, and nutritional a person can eat. Why? Because it's spiritual food. It's what our bodies need most. The bread is fresh, and the wine is sweet, and the oil is pure. And again, I'm talking spiritually, it's mouth-watering. The Lord says, I have this for you, spread before you. Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so I remind you that nothing satisfies like the king's table. And I love that we've shared that every, nearly every resurrection appearance of Jesus involved a meal. You go back and think through it. Bread and wine in Emmaus. Broiled fish in the upper room, Luke 24. Breakfast on the Sea of Galilee, John 21. Even takeout for shut-ins, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. And guess what? Jesus brings the dinner. He brings the food and spreads it out. And believers... Understand that Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is not knocking at that point on the heart of a lost person. He is knocking on the door of the church. Amen. Revelation 3.20 is a message to a church, to believers. I'm knocking. I'm here. Anyone? It's like Peter at the door when he was released from prison, you know, and he's knocking and little Rhoda opens the door and sees, ah! closes the door and runs back. Peter's here! And Peter's like... Hello? (laughs) And this is Jesus at the door. He did not compassionately release from the conviction of sin and clothe us with confidence only to turn us out at dinner time to scrounge from the city dumpsters. He prepares a table before us. The best sustenance every single day. One more thing here. And this one I believe is the hardest one for us to receive. Verse 34, for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. Number six, you can jot down contentment. Contentment. Why is this so hard for us to accept? That Jesus supplies our every need. Jesus is the provider. Some of us need to hear this one more time. I'm going to read it to you. You need to hear from Jesus on this. Matthew 6.25 He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, 
as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as for where you will work out. No, I'm sorry. As for what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns nor do you eat the gaps diet? I'm sorry. Oh, they don't do any of these things. And yet your heavenly <laughs> heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus does this. What does He ask of us? To share the message. It's a message that will be vindicated. It is the message of truth. It is the message of grace. It is the only message that this world needs to hear. There is no other message. Much as we might find things that are interesting or satisfying or encouraging in our lives that we want to share with people, this is the message that we have. This is the good news. By the way, in this final story of Jehoiachin, archaeology has confirmed it. Back in 1899 through 1917, there was an excavation in Babylon by Robert Coldaway, and they unearthed ancient cuneiform tablets that have Jehoiakim's name and a tally of his rations in Babylon. So, verified again. Jeremiah didn't often bring good news. And even the final chapter serves as historical proof of the judgment that fell upon the Jewish people. But I was reading through it and I thought, you know, if we had stopped at verse 30, we'd basically have to kind of soberly skulk out of here thinking, wow, this is how God judges. We have a better message. We have a message that is better than Jeremiah's. For all the messed up kings of Jeremiah's day, the Spirit leaves us this amazing picture of the ex-con who is cursed receiving a great grace. And it's our message because we are Jehoiachin. We are this man. Sinful, rebellious, convicted, and cursed until Jesus comes along and begins to speak compassionately. He gives me confidence of a throne before me, my clothing, a robe of righteousness. He feeds me daily His cuisine. And I am invited, brothers and sisters, to live with godly contentment, free from worry and strife, if I will. But again, of all these things that the King does for us, the one that is the most difficult for most Christians is receiving our daily allowance. My allotment. What God has prescribed for Rick. I hope you get the message because it's ours. 
The message of the gospel of grace. Let me end with this. Jeremiah 29.11 I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Lord Jesus, we love you so much and we come with all of our hearts this morning and we recognize the beauty and the value of the gospel message. We believe the truthfulness of it. And Father, we just need that, that extra spiritual nudge to proclaim this message. To be bold with it. Not to worry about how it falls, whether it takes someone a few minutes or 37 years to understand it. May we be persistent in bringing this marvelous truth. And Jesus, thank You. Thank You for pulling me out of prison. And thank You for the life that You set before me, before all of us. We praise Your name in Jesus. Amen.